All right. We did that again just because everybody seemed to like it. It was mostly a joke for her because she hadn't heard it the first time, but uh, we can do it. So, so. Oh, go ahead. After you. Welcome back to another episode of Yawa. We're here again to answer y'all's questions. And again, another week of great questions. We're going to try and roll through as many of these as we can answer effectively and uh, efficiently. efficiently. Yeah, we're not efficient, but we're happy to answer your questions and we appreciate y'all asking them. So It's cool s- how some of these uh, questions go in cycles. Like last time we got a lot of personal questions and some hunting questions and some training questions. And now I feel like we got a lot of training and puppy questions. So yeah. yep, yep. we're going to go with it. Yep. 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 You want to start or you want me to? I will start us off. Perfect. So we have a question from Christy Collins. Hey, Ethan and Kat. Hey, Christy. Hey, Christy. I would love some guidance and tips on introducing a new GSP puppy into our multi-GSP family. That is a really great question and one that gets asked quite a bit about how to introduce a puppy to the family. Um, And there's a couple of things that we want to mention. First of all, your puppy is going to be a puppy. They're going to want to be playful. They're going to want to have fun with those other dogs. And sometimes they're going to be too much for those other dogs especially right at first when everyone's learning to get along. So the important thing to remember is don't let your puppy pester your older dogs, whether they're a year old or 14 years old, because what's going to happen if your puppy pesters and pesters and pesters and you don't step in and say something or do something, your dogs are going to think, well, I need to fend for myself then. So they're going to try and put puppy in their place and grump or snap or bite them. And that's just going to create a bad dynamic from the get-go. Yeah. We don't want puppies to think that that's how communication happens in the dog pack and that that's okay behavior. So we need to step in and advocate for our other dogs and say, okay, puppy, you're doing too much roughhousing, too much pestering. Let's take a break, redirect their focus to something else, whether you've actually done any other training yet or not, but maybe just uh, take them to another room, play with them, take them outside for a potty break and say, now it's a little bit of crate time, Um, but just redirecting their focus to something else that is an okay behavior. But the other thing can be said about your older dogs. If they are just being grump butts to be grump butts, you need to say, hey, you guys, knock it off. Puppy's puppy. He's going to be playing with toys. He's going to be doing things. And if the puppy's not actually pestering your older dogs, it's probably where you need to say, older dogs, go lay down here, have a special treat on your own in a different room or in your crate for a little bit, but don't let them grump at your puppy either. So we are the leaders of the pack and they need to understand that. And I think that we hear that a lot is, oh, they'll sort it out or they'll figure it out. Well, yeah, they may, but it's also a really, really, really good opportunity for one or multiple of them to end up with a vet visit because now the puppy has a big scar across its face from getting snapped at or whatever. Or it can just create some behavioral issues in that puppy. They learn, well, this is how we deal with each other, and mm-hmm. they turn into a more aggressive dog, and we definitely don't want that to become the norm. Yeah, so it absolutely. was a really good question. Absolutely. Megan Damson 10. Megan Megan and Dam. No. Meg, Meg, Megan Meg, Adamson. Aha. There it is. <laughs> Well, why does my six month there it is? Why does my six month old GSP have a foamy mouth while retrieving slash running hard? Is this normal? 
Um, absolutely. Uh, I think that from an athletic standpoint, most people refer to that as cotton mouth and it can be related to, I don't know the science behind it. I know when I ran, I got a foamy, not quite foamy, not, not quite foamy, but a cotton mouth where it's dry and you just have this gross buildup in your mouth. It's like, I need water. And, uh, the same thing happens with the dogs, but because they have big floppy lips, it becomes more of those this, jowls really hold yeah. that saliva in and especially just, right around the flues, those, just those corners. Yeah. And yeah. so it can look really foamy and sticky and slobbery and they probably just need a good drink of water cause they're working hard. Yep. And a lot of those situations with our dogs, uh, we're going to actually just rinse their mouth and then let them cool down and give them water later. So and when we say rinse their mouth, we like to use water bottles to water our dogs, mm-hmm. especially when we're training or in the field or hunting. And so it's really easy. You got one of those squirt bottles and you just yeah. sound effects, sound effects. So <laughs> I'm hoping that he'll overlay sound effects. Is that the sound effects you're No, I was hoping that we could have sound effects over me going. Okay. So um, the big things to keep in mind here are when dogs are hot and have exerted themselves a lot of times if you just go, all right, you're thirsty and put a giant bowl of water down, they're going to end up drinking that entire bowl of water, which is not healthy either. Some dogs even to the point where they'll puke then afterward. So what we're getting at is, and this is another tidbit that I heard recently, um, even pigeons, if they go on a long flight and they're hot, winded, tired, if they immediately get access to all the water they want, it can actually give them a heart attack. Now I have not fact checked that, but most of the pigeon guys know their stuff, and if somebody told me that, I believe them. So the the big thing with this, though, is when your dog's hot, frothy mouth, the best thing for you to be doing is rinse their mouth out and then help them cool down, then give them access to all the water they want. Once they've actually cooled down, that's going to be a lot better situation. So great question. Next question from Jeff Johnson on Facebook, which I didn't mention that Christie's question was from Facebook and Ethan's was from Instagram. Insta. But could you talk some more about your take on the difference between steady to wing flush and steady to wing shot and fall? My GSP currently loves to break on the shot. So these are just levels of steadiness that we talk about. Steady to wing or flush just means that your dog is steady until the bird flushes. So takes wing, if you will. An explanation of steady to wing shot and fall would be that dog is steady until that bird is shot, hits the ground, and you send them for the retrieve. There is also kind of a middle ground that people are training for, whether they're testing or just a personal preference for fear of their dog getting shot is steady to shot. And that basically is what it sounds like. Your dog is steady until the shot of that gun. Yeah. So our take on that is for most dogs that are meat hunting dogs, if you will, that are just going to be great hunting companions, steady to wing or flush is what we're looking for. A, uh, especially if you're hunting wild birds, your dog's going to be able to get on those birds sooner once you have shot them. So the recovery of game should be better, um, conserve that game. And they're going to be able to mark better and thicker cover and things like that because they're not waiting to be sent on that retrieve steady to shot. So if you're concerned that your dog might get shot, so you want them to stand steady until the shot happens, 
I can understand the concern, but like we talked about in our last Yawa, actually, of just being aware of where everything is, taking safe shots, making sure you see horizon under those birds, things like that um, are important when you're hunting for safety. But steady to shot is probably one of the hardest levels of steadiness to maintain because your dog or any dog is very good at anticipating. So they go, okay, it usually takes dad... 3.5 3.5 seconds to pull that trigger and one, two, three, break. Yeah. And they're not actually waiting for the shot anymore at that point. And you're focused on that bird taking that shot and you don't see them breaking prior to the shot. So then you're just reinforcing and rewarding their lack of steadiness to that point. So it's a very hard level to maintain um, when you're actually hunting with your dog. There are tests that have that level of steadiness expectation. And when we're training for tests like that and prepping, our expectation in those dogs is always to test to the highest level. And then if it falls apart right before then in the actual test, then you should still be golden where your dog's not steady to, you know, wing shot and fall and they're breaking a little early. Well, you're still steady through the shot, which is what you need at those levels of testing. For example, senior hunter through AKC and the utility preparatory test in NAVDA specifically that I'm thinking about, as well as when we're test training for testing. I'll let you talk in a second here, honey. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But when we're training for that, usually we have a couple people out in the field, somebody helping flush, somebody helping gun, somebody handling a dog. We're running brace mates. So we can help watch for each other if that dog's breaking and we can help make corrections when they need to happen. Well, and and that's what I was going to, this perfect segue, is what I was getting at is when you are trying to train steady to shot, the difficult portion of that is the maintenance aspect of it. Um, and knowing, like she was saying, when did that dog break? Did they anticipate or not? And your dog's going to anticipate the shot. But the problem being when your handler and gunner is you don't know. You pull up and the dog is behind you, which is the whole point of steady to shot training because now they're in a safe spot. You can walk up and flush the bird, but you don't know. And we got to see this in training here just the other day. It was just the, recently, yep. the perfect example. And I was like, said to Jess, I was like, I wish I had this on video so I could show everybody because um, the dog specifically handled a couple birds perfectly. You know, the bird came up, was shot, went down, dog took off, it shot, looked everything perfect. And I said, all right, on this next one, we're not going to shoot. And the bird got up and in that same pulled the trigger, which we didn't shoot that time. And but the, the time, same amount of time. Same amount of time, the dog waited and then took off just like it had anticipated the exact amount of time it would take. So it was a perfect example to explain why it's difficult to maintain. And Not impossible, just, just difficult. Correct. And then just talking about our last steady to wing shot and fall, that's, again, typically a level of steadiness necessary for certain testing, master hunter in AKC, the utility test in uh, NAVDA, or even the invitational in NAVDA. So that is a much higher level of steadiness to expect. However, Like we're talking about, the dog could think that, oh, I'll wait and break. Well, if they break at any point in the sequence, there's a correction happening because they don't get to go until we send them. So it is easier to maintain in a sense, um, as well as easier to know if your dog's making a mistake because they're not supposed to move until you tell them. Um, But it is also not always a realistic way to hunt behind dogs because, like, we go out pheasant hunting. Well, 
those birds run really bad if you break a wing and they aren't dead and then you're waiting to send your dog to make those retrieves. You even add that second to two seconds to three seconds. I mean, anybody that's hunted with me, I always talk about how pheasants especially, pheasants would be the biggest one on this, but um, how fast they are and you don't recognize or realize how actually fast they are and difficult to keep up with until you get to see one running across the field and then me running across the field chasing after it because dogs were clear over there and the bird got shot on this end and I saw it go down and I was like, I'm going to catch this. Now, granted, they don't run lightning fast, but they might run 10 miles an hour. And and in some of that cover can disappear pretty quickly and easily. So even when we're not hunting dogs, steady to wing shot and fall, and they're just not necessarily in the area. It's hard to keep up with. And trying to get them on those birds in those situations to help make those retrieves is difficult. So let alone having to wait to send them for those retrieves. Yep. So the last portion with that is you were talking about if you've come to one of our steadiness seminars or advanced steadiness seminars that we put on um, or gotten the opportunity to train with Kat and I, especially me, I'm usually pretty good at voicing my opinion on how things should be done, which most of the time is why people come to train with us. But um they like the way we train yeah. and they like the results that we get. Absolutely. So you'll hear me mention though, when it comes to setting the stuff that it's black and white and the more black and white that we can make that situation for the dog, the faster they're going to learn and the easier that it is going to be for them to understand our expectations. If you move, you don't make a retrieve. This is using positive punishment, but we can go more in depth of that later. But the, the other side of it we'll is- We'll do a whole- video on operant conditioning because that's been asked before and I think that's one that we can go into detail and give idea. examples so yeah that'd be a great idea and then we could do video examples that show yeah some yeah. b-roll not so, just us talking and being boring wah, wah, wah. so the there's a button for that uh, okay so um the other side of it being that to say that an advanced dog's situation is black and white isn't 100% realistic. So, you know, there are a lot of situations that can happen. The dog could make a little bit of movement to mark that bird, and that's a intelligent and realistic hunting dog. But the more, especially in the early stages of that game, the more black and white we can make it, the faster they get to that result. And then you can start to play that gray area a little bit, and you go, all right, I'm going to give you the opportunity of, you hopped this way. Did you stop yourself? Did you take handling? Did you take a correction? No. All right. That was steady because you did it all with no help from me. Send you for your retrieve. So that um, aspect of it being black and white makes it easier to um, achieve that level of steadiness as well as uh, maintain a consistent level of steadiness once you've gotten there. That was a really good question. Allowed us to go into quite a bit of detail, actually. Absolutely. All right, guys, that's all we have time for for today. Make sure to tune in for part two. We will be back with you very soon. We will. And you guys answered whether we should do this all as one long video or split it up into multiple groups. And the consensus was we're going to split it up. Uh, but you can get the whole long all-in-one podcast version if you want to have it all at one go. I'm Kat, the dog trainer. <laughs> No, he is not. I'm Cat the dog trainer. <laughs> and I'm the guy with the pink hat. Thanks guys for watching.
All right, guys, welcome back to part two of this week's Yawa. We had another great uh, string of questions, and we're going to get right back into answering your next question. Next question, life of Teddy underscore the GSP. This is an Instagram question. It says, should we be concerned with a smaller GSP? He is only 47 pounds at nine months old. I would say you should be concerned if your dog looks unhealthy. The size of the dog doesn't really matter, male, female, all the things. There's a lot of genetics and there's a big variance in actual size. Um, Maybe concerns could be related to whether or not you're going to show the dog does it meet breed standards, should the dog be bred. Those would be questions to ask. But as far as if your dog's nine months old, weighs 47 pounds, that's not something that ever falls into my category as a concern unless we see the lethargy or the dog is skinny, can't hold weight. You know, so maybe send us a picture. We're always a big fan of feeding to body condition. And if you send us a picture, I'm going to be able to say that dog looks healthy or not. I mean, if you have any other concerns about the health of your dog, I would definitely consult your veterinarian. Yeah. And we typically see dogs continuing to grow height wise, stature wise through at least a year. And then if you keep your male, which is the male intact, um, he he, yep. Yeah, if he stays intact, he has the potential to, to put on more fully... muscle mass as well. Until about two, I would say, is yes. when we usually see that full musculature development and our Somewhere max size two. and weight, yep. usually. So yep. but, he's still got plenty of growing time, and 47 pounds is not sound abnormally small for nine months old. No, because, I mean, structure-wise, like you're saying, height and length and all of those things being full... I mean, he'll probably be, by the time he's a year, 50 to 52 pounds, give or take, maybe five pounds in there. And then pack on a few pounds of muscle Four to five pounds of muscle. He's going to be upper 50s. I mean, that's that's in the vicinity of normal males, just on the on the smaller end of that spectrum. But um, like Vex, I mean, Vex is 60 pounds, 59, 60 pounds, kind of depending on where he's at. So that would be probably just about the size of him. And he's perfect. Practically perfect in Practically every way. Practically perfect in every way. So next question, (laughs) this is a good one from Instagram, LW underscore 4H underscore Prez. What is your thought on inbreeding dogs? So this can be a very- I have an opinion on this. (laughs) Go go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, we'll get to Ethan's opinion on this. I'm just going to talk a little bit about inbreeding dogs. So um, if you've ever looked at a pedigree online, especially one that we've got on our website with color coordination and- COIs and all the little confusing tidbits, people want to know what all that means. Yeah. We should probably do a tutorial sometime on that. But basically, to answer your question about inbreeding, that's typically what we call line breeding. We're trying to get specific characteristics more consistently out of a breeding program. So there is some inbreeding that goes on. Uh, you always want to look at that in walking a thin line of not too much, but just enough to build consistency in a program. We can start with some of the issues um, or misnomers or misinformation that people have. And I think the first thing that comes into play is when people talk about inbreeding, you think about, you know, getting married to your sister or your cousin and then having kids that are mentally not correct. You have messed up children. 
And that's not necessarily the case, uh, nor is it the situation in with dogs. But what ends up happening is you um, you make that gene pool that you're pulling from smaller. And when you are pulling from a smaller gene pool, more things are going to show up. And those are going to be more good things and bad things. So if there's bad things present, they're also going to show up. If there's good things present, they're going to show up. So you can more actually... More consistently. More consistently. Yep. So to... Uh, the best way that we can describe it is if you imagine, and these are the actual numbers. So if you look at, we typically look at 10 generation pedigrees. You have 10 generations from dog A and 10 from B. That adds up to 2,046 dogs. Now, if these two dogs would be, those are all unique dogs. Now, the more line breeding that happens, now those get smaller and smaller of And the reason dogs. that is because dog A has similar dogs in its background, in its pedigree, to dog B. Yep. So those dogs are repeated in that pedigree. So you don't have 2,046 unique dogs anymore. You have half that number or yeah. even less than half that number. So even that's... Even less a lot of times, yeah. Yep. So like uh, a specific example would be if you... And this happens a lot, is if you take half siblings. So um, same dads, different moms. And then if the moms have any relation, that tightens it up even more. And again... That doesn't create problems in itself until you go too far, which I don't know what the magic number for too far is, but genetics, or excuse me, but nature usually does tell you. Um, if you start getting too tight, you lose things. Often in cattle, they see this. Uh, the first thing that goes is mothering instincts. So moms stop taking care of the calves, and that's not uh, beneficial in the case of raising cows so that and fertility can go down and fertility as well. yep so you, you run into those things but as far as what was the exact question so we what can, is our thought on inbreeding dogs okay so i believe that line breeding a uh, nicer term for instead of inbreeding but line breeding which would be the term that's used is a very important part of building a healthier more consistent short hair as long as that line breeding isn't taken too far and you have healthy genetics dogs. that you're pulling from. Yep. Yes. So good question. Here's a quick one from A W small nine. What kind of fabric do you choose for your dog platforms? So we're Perfect. using our Coranda dog beds for in the kennel as well as in the home. I use the exact same fabric, whether it's in the kennel or the house, though. I use the 40-ounce vinyl. It's super heavy-duty. Uh, super up, durable. Holds up to digging on the bed, chewing on the bed uh, for an extended amount of time, as well as super easy to wipe up. It doesn't have any porous fibers that are going to hold smell if there's an accident on that bed. Uh, so we really like that for both the house and the kennel. There's the mesh options, you know, especially if your dog's going to be outside for breathability and coolness. That's great, too. But we really like the 40-ounce vinyl. Mm -hmm. Like I said, that's a quick and easy one. Quick and easy. All right. So this one says... It's in preparation of the storytelling. Tina Tillman Pierce from Facebook got my first GSP puppy. Congrats. I researched and had an idea what I was getting into. I want an exercise companion mostly, but also looking into other things we can do to nourish his drive to hunt. I have been watching some of your videos and they're very helpful. Awesome. You're welcome. Two questions. He is four months old. How much exercise should he, can I do with him? Currently read, um, I'm currently really out of shape. 
aren't we all? And took him on a three-mile, very slow-paced run, but was told that's not a good idea yet. I feel like I should be taking him when I go for a run, but also don't want to injure him. Um, I actually... Uh, so I go ahead say, and start with the first one about yeah, exercise. Um, Trina, thank you. You're, out, you're also a member on Patreon, and oh. we've gone over these questions already, but I think that they're oh. great questions to... Oops. Yeah, no, that's great. I think these are great questions to share with the rest of the world and show the kind of... I mean, these would be the direct feedback that she's already gotten on these questions, which is um, a great testament to how this process works. So um, first of all... The exercise. The exercise aspect of things. Uh, you know, it's really going to come down to, yes, you don't want to push your dog to the extreme at that age, um, especially for things that are going to be super strenuous, like we show roading our dogs. You want full, as close to full bone development as possible, because they say that growth plates don't close until I've heard something over to um, anybody that wants to correct me on that. I would love to hear the exact uh, thing, but I believe it's over two years old before growth plates are fully closed. Um, and you're wanting not to cause damage to growth. So that's the, the people's, uh, words of caution to you, but just running on even surfaces and things like that aren't going to be that difficult, especially for a young short hair, three miles at a slow pace. Um, I'm going to say, if you're saying that you are out of shape, um, it's probably not that much activity or exercise in the grand scheme of things for your dog especially within the next month, it's going to be one of those where he's like, yeah, I got this three miles. That's a piece of cake. So I, I wouldn't be too concerned as long as that's not three miles of hard pulling with additional load bearing or strapped for harnesses, strapped with harnesses for roading or something along those lines. So um, as far as that goes. And just pay attention to your puppy. If he acts sore, that would be a time to slow down. Okay, check while him out. we've overdone this. And, yeah, make yeah. sure that you haven't overdone it. Yep. Now I've got the rest of that second part of the question. So second potty training is not going so well. Mostly he'll be outside for a while, then come in and pee. Or he'll go to the door and hit the bell, but then pee before we get there, which is pretty quickly. We do try to make sure we give lots of positive praise when we see him going outside. Any ideas? So there's a couple things that I mentioned with this. And one is, and we hear this a lot. My puppy was just outside. It came inside and peed. So the first question that we ask is, how long was your puppy outside? You have to think about the fact that their bladder, especially after drinking water in any amount of excess of, you know, they drink a good portion of water, they're going to have to pee. Um, and that a lot of that comes down to water intake. Um, I would say that it's one to two ounces of water per pound per day as a minimum water intake. Uh, but that's if you think about us, if we're drinking that one ounce of water per pound per day, if you actually stick to that, you got to pee a lot. So consider their bladders not being as developed as even ours, right? We're adults and everything else, but they're going to have to pee pretty regularly and they're not going to be as good at holding it. So potty accidents are normal. I don't think that you're too out far of the wheelhouse on that. The, the thing though is your puppy went outside, they played, they probably peed right away. And then did they play for 20, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, and then they came back inside. So the key with that is check and make sure that they pee before they come back in. If there's any extended playtime outside. The next is if you're really struggling, if you've got a puppy that's already going to the door and ringing the doorbell, that's awesome. 
you're not very far from having zero more accidents. I mean, they're going to the door to potty means they know what's going on. They and they just, just can't quite hold it long enough. Yep. Underdeveloped bladder that's coming along and the behaviors are there. It's just going to take a little bit more bladder control and you'll be pretty solid on your potty training, it sounds like. And if we're really, really struggling, a lot of times what we'll do is, hey, baby, um, is not actually limit the amount of water that they have, but start to regulate the times in which they have access to water, which can give you a better idea of, okay, so this morning you had access to water, you drank a bunch, you're going to have to pee every 15, 20 minutes for the next hour or so, and then you should be able to go longer periods of time. Um, You can utilize crate training with that where you pottied, you can... And you've, you've played and pottied. Now you can go in your crate for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes. Now go out and potty and then play some more and then go in your crate. You can kind of help to better regulate those. because um, And that crate training really is something that we found that helps when we're, when we're struggling a little bit more. Yeah. So, great question. Next question from Just Bird Dogging It Up. Will you guys be making more puppy series again? Since everybody's asking about puppy stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we will. Uh, we are excited to keep a puppy out of Muddy's upcoming litter. Uh, she's been bred to Benny and she's due here pretty soon. So we're hoping to keep one of those puppies. And then once they hit eight weeks old, start rolling out some more training videos because like everyone knows, all puppies train a little bit differently. We can learn new things. We might throw in some new training things. We're always learning as well. So absolutely. The, the feel of the training series will probably be a little bit different. Um, and touch on a few of the more specific questions that we get about how to raise puppies. And um, so it'll have a little different feel, but we're definitely going to have a whole new series coming out. Ideally, within the next few months, we'll start. We'll hopefully have a little bit more cuts and B-roll and things like that put together instead of all the one-take, one-shot, live video feel that we'd done before that had crossed platforms to Instagram and Facebook really well. Uh, But... The thing to remember is we're still going to be doing those videos in a live type situation. First time the puppies learn these things. First time we're working on these things, things we're struggling with. So you get to see those and understand that, hey, we're professionals, but we also have struggles with puppies sometimes and they don't always do it right for us the first time either. So Yeah, I think that this, like she said, will be way more based around the struggles of raising a puppy as opposed to just how to do the training. Because, I mean... The training steps are there. They don't really change, but we want to show more problems that can happen and and how how to fix them. Yep. Great question. Thanks for all your great questions. We're going to have to split this up again because there are so many of them. So tune back for part three. I'm the guy with the pink gun. And I'm Kat, the dog trainer. We'll see you soon. questions because you had so many great ones and thank you for asking them. So we're going to get started answering your questions. Okay. And for the next question, Jared Jackson underscore 13, and I believe this is Instagram says, what are some good drills for my GSP to make sure she's working and has a job? It sounds like you may have heard me say that your dog needs a job before. Um, they do. 
So the, the biggest thing to think about with finding a job for your dog is you want it to be something that fits into your lifestyle um, as well as uh, something that your dog enjoys. We don't want a job that they hate because it's not going to be effective. Um, sometimes we have to build things that can become jobs or working. Um, but the more that you ask and or slash regi- uh, red, 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 rigid, I don't, I, I don't know what I'm thinking. <laughs> Regiment. Okay, I was going to say, let me use my telepathic Mer- abilities and figure out what you're thinking. Regiment. So um, the more that you can set up that way, the better things are going to be. Even to the extent of, you know, doing those. All right, Quest, why don't you just meander? Don't hey. unplug our audio equipment. Yeah. So, um. Trying to do things that are going to help develop a working um, mindset is going to be the key to that. That can be even to the extent of, and we're going to do a video on this shortly. This is on the short docket, but um, creating more and more ways to work for food. And that's going to help to build food drive, which helps to develop a better desire to work for training sessions and all of those things downhill. Um, But simply spoken, um, steadiness, obedience, retrieving games are usually keys for day-to-day jobs that dogs really enjoy doing. Um, The next thing is going to be what you have availability for. So if you can throw in some other things of maybe things you're thinking about, I can say that sounds like a great job. That does not. But the, the limits are basically endless on what jobs you could create for your short hair. Good question. Let's see what do we got next. Tony underscore UMG. How and when do you introduce the heel command during heel training? So I'm going to correct you on the fact that we don't use the term command. We use the term cue. Um, and that goes into our training philosophy in the set of we are teaching and developing and helping dogs to learn, not forcing and breaking and commanding dogs to bo- obey. So if you take that mindset to training, a lot of times it's going to minimize the amount of frustrations and um, just puts you in a better mindset for training all the way around. Because when you struggle, you go, how can I help this dog? Not how can I make this dang dog do this? Um, How can I help this dog is a lot better mindset. So when do we introduce the Q uh, heel? The Q command. The Q heel uh, would be after our dog is starting to display the behavior. We don't introduce any cues until uh, we've got an understanding of what we're looking for. So we actually use our easy lead to teach all dogs how to heal. And we start that by basically eliminating the pulling behavior. That does not take very long. It's most dogs, it's eight to 10 minutes. They pretty much understand not to pull anymore. Sweetheart, you gotta stop. You gotta stop bumping my my microphone. So once they understand how not to pull anymore, then we actually take that muzzle portion, uh, the the halter, head halter portion off of their muzzle, and then we go to a standard slip style leap. Now, a lot of people train with just a standard slip style leash, and we add that extra step because it saves your arm a lot. But once we have that, 
I know. I, I'm she trying to make her go lay down, but she just keeps coming for loves. Money. Go kennel. Okay, so we now have a dog that uh, understands how not to pull. That's not going to help. Turn this way. <laughs> Turn this way. We now understand how to help a dog that we have a dog that doesn't pull anymore. Sorry. And we can start to introduce a cue once they're displaying that behavior. So we'll go through the head halter, then do a slip lead, and you can make less corrections because they get, I'm not supposed to pull on lead, and then you need to start utilizing the cue a lot. Start with heel, start walking. Anytime you change directions, you can actually utilize the cue again. Hey, remember, heel, and then all said and done, you're going to pretty much use it when you begin, and then if you stop moving, when you're asking again. Um, I hope that answers the question with all of the Distractions from the dog, (laughs) because that's life. So we have a really good question from WA underscore hunting underscore newbie. What questions should a first-time bird dog buyer ask potential breeders? What information should I be taking away from pedigree charts of litters? It's a little overwhelming for such an investment. So this is kind of a good question. And segues back into talking a little bit about the inbreeding and coefficient of inbreeding and unique ancestors and the color charting of those pedigrees that, yes, can be overwhelming when you don't know what you're looking at for sure. And what questions should a first-time bird dog buyer ask? That's also a really good question and very responsible to be thinking ahead and thinking about these things that you're just not going, puppies, and picking a puppy that's not necessarily going to fit what you're looking for. So first, instead of asking your potential breeder, you need to ask yourself a couple of questions. What am I looking for in a new puppy? What are your priorities? Are you looking for a family dog because you've got young kids? Are you looking for a family dog that can be a great hunting companion? Are you mostly interested in upland hunting or do you also really want to do waterfall hunting with your, your new dog? Um, and what, cause I don't think you necessarily said GSP. Mm-mm. So what kind of hunting dog do you want? Do you want a flusher? Do you want a pointer? You want a pointer, but ask yourself <laughs> these questions. And then once you've made your list of these are the things that I want, put them in order. Uh, most people want a dog that's going to be a great family member because they're part of the family, 365, and you might get an opportunity to hunt a handful, maybe two handfuls of times a year. Well, shoot, even us, right? So we guide, we hunt a ton. I mean, probably drastically more than the average bear. And I would say our dogs are still in the vicinity of 70 plus percent family dog, 30, 30-ish percent. Yeah. Something. Let's go 70, 30, you know, I mean... Um, so it's, it's a like huge Quest part of, can't get out of my lap right now. Cause she thinks she's just the lap dog. Um, but they are a huge part of the family, huge, huge, huge part of the family. So, and so you're looking at your priorities and even for us, livability is always huge. I want a dog that can be easy to have in the house. Great with Aiden, great with us, great with the other dogs. Uh, so family living is always really important, but and the same hand, I want a dog that we go to the field, they don't quit for us. They hunt all day, they work hard, they know their job. And a lot of that comes to breeding as well as training. But a lot of times, if you know what you want, then you go to the breeders and you ask them the questions. So do your dogs live in the house with you? If 
a family dog's important and the breeder doesn't keep their dogs in the house, there's a reason for that because they can't deal with the dogs in the house because they're, excuse my French, a pain in the ass. Yeah, either that or just it's not a priority. So that thought process hasn't gone into selecting breeding dogs. Right. If they don't have them in the house, that just be, be might be because they have more of an old school mentality. But then, like Ethan said, yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean those dogs won't be good family dogs. But the breeders haven't put that into the thought process of specifically exactly. picking dogs for their program. Yep, exactly. And then... Um, ask what kind of hunting they do with those dogs, what kind of testing they've done with those dogs to prove that they have the ability to be trained to those highest, highest levels of testing. If you're looking at a dog that you want to be able to be um, a versatile dog that can both do upland hunting and waterfall hunting, you should be looking at a breed that does well in those versatility tests. Um, if you only plan on upland hunting, looking at a dog that does well through AKC hunt tests or even field trials, if you've got a lot of open quail country that you want to cover some ground, you can definitely look at those different testing to see if they're going to fit what you're looking for. But the, the biggest thing to look at the testing themselves for is because that, you know, some people say, and I've heard this cop out from breeders specifically, oh, my dogs are just hunting dogs, the tests don't matter. Well, the test gives validation of what the dog can do when you, as a buyer, prospective buyer, don't get the opportunity to live with, raise, and hunt behind the dogs that you're trying to get a puppy from. If you have a buddy or an uncle and you've always hunted with their two dogs and they're everything that you want, then get a puppy out of that cross. You know, I mean, that's fine. But when you don't get to see those things, you're looking at pictures and you're looking at pedigrees. Um, those titles give you a better understanding of what the potential of the litter should be. And I would also say um, understanding titles would also be very important. Because we, we hear champions, champions, well, my, champions. My puppy's out of a champion bloodline. Well, does that mean they're a field champion or a show champion? Uh, does that mean they are in walking Master trials or, or horseback trials? Yeah, yeah, I mean, so... There's a lot of things that those titles can mean and understanding what those titles are and how they would apply to what you're looking for would be also something that I would say is very important. And you can research those titles online, Google it. Most of the time you can just Google them. Yep. yep. Or reach out if you have specific questions about pedigrees. Uh, but a good example of pedigrees would be looking at our website and our dogs from our program. I mean, they have pretty nice pedigrees that have the titles that we're looking for. Um, we don't typically do a lot of field trialing because that's not our game. Uh, we like dogs that are a little bit closer working foot hunting dogs. And I don't know if many of our dogs would compete well in those arenas because they're not going to hunt big enough for what people typically want to see. Judges typically want to see. So. Most of the time, no. So just understanding those titles would be also a really good thing before you select a puppy just based on Oh, it's got a title. I'll know what that title means first. So. Yeah. so you've decided what you're looking for. You've found a breeder now that is hopefully doing the same things that you're looking for or saying that's what their goals are. You know what these titles are in the pedigrees because um, you've looked them up. Google, again, is a great way to find that or just reach out to us and we can help with most of them. So, and then I would also say, ask what health clearance has been done with your dogs, especially if you're talking about different breeds. Um, there are certain things that certain breeds have a higher chance of having. Yeah. How did it? That sounded 
really weird how I said that, but, um, some breeds are more predisposed to have issues. Oh, Ethan translate. Perfect. <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to say. It just didn't come out as eloquently. So perfect. So but. you've, uh, I mean, those would be the biggest things. And then the last one that I could say would be the, the, as important as the rest, um, would be feel comfortable with where you're getting a dog from. If you don't, just move on. You, you need to set up a place that you're going to be able to have the opportunity to have a relationship with and say, you know, I like these people. I like these dogs. I like the idea of this. And then um, you can stay in touch with them, reach out if you have issues or reach out just to say, I love this dog and um, everything else. But because I know somebody as, you feel comfortable with. as us as breeders, I love hearing how puppies from our program are doing. We have a specific Facebook group just for people that have gotten dogs from us so that we can hopefully keep track of as many of them as possible because some people do, you know, fall off the face of the earth and you don't hear from them ever again, which we try and screen our puppy buyers in a sense that we're going to be able to have that relationship with them. Absolutely. But we get a lot of questions from people that tell us, hey, I just picked up my eight-week-old puppy. Now what do I do? And I'm like, I love that you feel comfortable asking us for guidance and feel that we're a really great educational resource. But I also question why you don't feel comfortable reaching out to your breeder and asking those questions of them that you just literally picked this puppy up from. I don't know what your puppy was being fed at the other breeder, so I can give you recommendations on what we're feeding, but just cold turkey switching them might not be the best option either. Um, you know, but we get a lot of those questions and I'm happy to answer them. Don't get me wrong, but it always makes me question why you're not reaching out to your breeder first as a resource. Absolutely. So really, really great question. I've got another one here. It says uh, from Shaner Andrew. Shaner Andrew. Instagram question. How do I stop counter surfing? Um, there are a couple different things that can go into how to prevent counter surfing. And uh, our go-to is to um, prevent them having the opportunity to counter surf. That would be typically we utilize place training in the house. And if you are not actively there to, you know, intervene with the counter surfing itself, we'd say, hey, go over, kennel up, lay down for a minute. And um, that, again, is creating a job and teaching them to, this is what our expectation is to behave in the house. You need to not be getting into things. And then when you are in the kitchen working on stuff and your dog is interacting and being part of the family, if he tries to counter surf, you have proper timing and you can make a correction there. Um, if you choose not to do those, there are different ways that you could correct that. Or some dogs really just struggle with the idea of it's not an okay thing. You know, every dog has um, a different level of drive and desire to complete whatever task is on their mind. And so sometimes it takes different forms of correction. And I would say that the the number one that we hear is I put a collar on them and I shock them when they do that. And that is not our go-to. Um, collar breaking, and again, like we talked about earlier, is our, our training philosophies would not be ideal. It'd be more like a last case scenario. But place training is going to be huge with that. And then being there, I think most dogs pick up pretty quick on when it's okay to do something, when it's not. And just your presence and 
having in that situation is going to help curb that. The next, if um, you have a dog that's really, really sneaky about, you know, even if it's a split second where you turn around to go this way and they're doing it behind you because they know you're watching and not watching, um, mousetraps are a, a pretty good way to have a good quality timing on correction. And they rarely, if ever, even snap the dog. They it's just, just a startle. Yeah, they just set off and then that startles them and that's perfect timing. So that would be one that we would use, um, even to the extent of I've seen uh, it used in all kinds of environments for preventing dogs from going near or messing with stuff. Uh, I was over at a friend's house and they had a new uh, mount, taxidermy, and they had mouse traps all over it. It was the first time I'd really seen that. And I was like, uh, you got a mouse problem? <laughs> that you Just don't around want to get the new, new mount? Yeah, yeah the, it was a bear, standing bear. You don't want the mice to get your new bear? I said, no, it's for the dogs. They just put mouse traps around it. It usually takes one or two days, and then they it's leave it alone. It's a little mousetrap minefield. <laughs> yes. So, um, uh, and the mousetrap, again, doesn't snap them most of the time. I would assume it's a possibility, but mostly just startles them. They go, whew, leave that alone. So those would be a couple things that I would work on, primarily uh, working on place training and not giving them the opportunity to learn to be expert counter surfers. So. so that was a really great question that allowed us to segue into this next question from Mark Slabuski from Facebook. I wonder if you could offer some examples of when not to use the e-collar. My guess is many get overused or used in the wrong circumstances. Yes, definitely get used in the wrong circumstances, uh, get used improperly. Like Ethan said, a lot of people say, well, yeah, my dog did this, so I just lit him up. Well, that is definitely not how we want to use an e-collar. It from- might work sometimes, but most of the time not in the right way. And, and that's it's what probably going to cause more problems than yeah. it's going to fix. It's like my dog runs away from me, so I shocked him with the collar and it was magic. They came back. Well, they were scared. And they didn't understand what was going on, so, so they, they ran defaulted back to, to you something. or the house for safety, which is going to create more problems. So And not... And it could potentially allow you to not introduce the collar then properly down the road when you need to reinforce something that they've already learned. So things and examples of when not to use it. Anytime you're upset, definitely don't use it. That is not how they're meant to be used. They're not meant to light a dog up when they did something wrong. Um, We use the collars to reinforce something the dog already knows. So place training, recall. Sometimes we'll collar condition a dog to sit or lay down. Uh, but for the most part, if a dog's doing something that they're not supposed to counter surfing, then we're going to use the collar to redirect them to something that they do know that is an okay behavior, whether that's calling them back to you or putting them on a kennel on a dog bed, or if a dog's collar conditioned to heal, we use this example. A lot of times people are out for a walk with their dog. They're coming up on new people or a new dog and their dog gets excited and wants to jump on those people. Well, I'm not shocking the dog because they jumped up on those people. I would use the collar at the lowest level necessary to get the desired response of getting them back into a heel position and holding them to that heel position so that they don't have the opportunity to go jump on all those other people because they're yeah. doing what they're supposed to do. And I'm reinforcing that with the collar. It's an interesting concept to throw out there, and we can put it in these words, or I often put it in these words. It's basically dogs uh, are extremely good at anticipating everything that you're going to do, everything in training, and um, the best way to 
um, help your dog through training and development is to be better at anticipating than they are. And if you can anticipate their moves and know you're going to come jump on me or you're going to go try and jump on those people or you're going to go crazy when people come to the door, you can curb all of those things and, and um, basically prevent them from being coming a conditioned issue by anticipating they're going to be happening and setting them up for success by directing that focus elsewhere. Yes. All right. We've got time for one more question and I have a good one that rolls right okay. out. We got one more. It rolls right through the last one, talking about collar conditioning one more time. Okay. And that'll be it for this week. So Alexis Dillon said, will having an invisible fence confuse a puppy during collar conditioning? So we're talking about how to use the collar, how not to use the collar, when to use the collar, and how it can be overused and all those things. So it runs right into this. Um, if you're teaching all of these things properly, it should be no issue. But again, our recommendation with collar conditioning is to go ahead and teach the behavior of recall first, then teach uh, with electric fences, teach collar conditioning to recall so the dog has an understanding. And think about your collar more as a form of communication than as a form of correction. And if you think about it that way, that you can utilize the collar to talk to your dog, this very powerful tool that has been developed in um, and fine-tuned over the years uh, from a more barbaric tool that is where it kind of got its bad name to what it is today, um, a great teaching tool. You can communicate with your dog, and that's going to help you to feel right about when you're supposed to use the collar. But if you have a dog that has a full understanding of collar conditioning to recall and then start your underground or invisible fence training, you're going to have no issues. Now, the key with the invisible fence training is to do it the way that they say. Put your flags out everywhere. Show the dog. Here's your warning, the beep or the vibrate or whatever it is. And then here's the edge. Don't cross the line. And if you take the time to work that in as well, training, again, it's not magic of figure it out, dog. Um, you're going to have drastically less issues and ultimately a, a better trained dog in the end. And one last question from me. <laughs> this okay. was a good question because other people asked it, not necessarily in the exact same words, but if you watch this and you know what your question was, this will help answer it. From Barry Maydew, how do I train to hold a point? So we had a lot of questions about how do I keep my dog holding point on wild birds and what's the point of a belly collar and lots of questions like that. But this is the most specific question and this is the specific answer. Formal, whoa, training. So first of all, we try and instinctually teach dogs to point using DT Systems bird launchers. Um, if you haven't seen our multiple different videos on how to start that process with a puppy, we've got a whole bunch of them on our YouTube channel. Check them out. But we use electronic bird launchers to try and instinctually help a dog learn how to point first. And we actually have those laid out in a very easy location now because people talk about not being able to find all of our videos or that doesn't seem like there's any way to figure out how to watch them in order. If you go to standingstonekennels.com slash links, L-I-N-K-S, standingstonekennels.com slash links. It'll show you a button that takes you to our most recently posted video. And then there are three more buttons that show you that take you right to the playlist to watch all of the videos in order. Back to Kat. So once we try and instinctually 
teach our dogs to point. Um, if we've got a dog with exceedingly high prey drive that just can't quite get there, um, they go into takeout mode and they smell that bird and zoom in on them. And through repetition of trying to teach them to be more cautious with that electronic launcher, you're just not quite getting there. Then we will move into formal woe training. Um, as well as if you do get a dog that's pointing naturally and being very steady, typically our next step in their training anyway will be formal woe training. But I prefer to have a dog show me that behavior first, that they can do it without needing formal woe training. Then we move into that. Um, and we use our positive pigeon drill as well in conjunction with these other training methods to help get there with these dogs. But we use a belly collar for formal woe training. There's other methods out there. Uh, you can use check cords and woe posts and barrels and things like that. But we use belly collars. Have we ever used those other methods? Sure. Not every single dog can be trained the exact same way, but the very high majority of them, we use a belly collar. Yep. And if you don't know how to formally woe train a dog, we also have videos on that. So I'm not going to take up a All lot of time. All the videos. I'm not going to take up a lot of time because <laughs> I'm getting dirty looks from Ethan for asking and answering another question. But this one was a lot of people's questions about how to hold point longer, things like that. And the answer is formal woe training. Yeah, you have a dog that understands woe, you can say woe and they stand there and that helps you catch up or slow them down if the birds are running, all and, of the things. Yep. It's, and it's you're able beneficial. to, that formal woe training, they become collar conditioned to woe. So then they can understand what the collar means in those situations and stand there longer until they're released, whether that's the flush of the bird or you tell them, okay. Good job, Kat. Thank you. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you guys every uh, thank you guys as always for tuning in again to this week's Wa Yawa series. Why you answered you asked. You, <laughs> you answered, we asked. Uh, we try and do this every week for you guys unless something comes up. Definitely don't hesitate to reach out to us with your questions and thank you to everybody who subscribes. We look forward to seeing you next week and answering your questions. I'm pretty sure you still said you answered, we asked. It is definitely you asked, we answered. Just saying. I'm the guy with the pink gun. <laughs> I'm Cat the dog trainer. Signing off. Signing off.